Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. How are you, man? I'm great. I am very I, excited. I would, I would hate for the listener to assume that we just now started talking about anything. We never do, do we? Uh, we never start from cold. Especially cold today with our guest. Why don't you introduce our guest? Yes, we are excited about this episode today. We have a guest, Dr. Andy Little. Andy's Associate Professor of Business Law and Associate Dean of the College of Business Administration at Abilene Christian. And I am so excited to have him here because I feel that he will add a lot to a discussion that Scott and I, over the two years of this podcast, have often come up to and stopped because we just didn't have the wherewithal um, to plow ahead. And you know, I'm not really sure where the conversation will go. I know it'll show that Scott is wrong, but I'm not uh, really sure in what way it'll show that. Right, Scott? <laughs> I'm sure you'll believe that. <laughs> but um, before I get Andy to talk about his bona fides, let's talk about our three tenets of the podcast. Let's do. First. Sacred cows make great barbecue. Yes, we will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we wish. And second. We will let our flag fly proudly. Yeah, we'll argue our point of view as long as we have it and as vigorously <laughs> as uh, we can. And if it turns, we will argue the new point of view, won't we? Yeah, if you ever get around to changing my mind, I'll fly that flag for you. I think there are episodes where listeners can hear how I did change your mind a little bit on some things. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But third, we are bros before politicos. That's right. We're brothers first and everything else is just details. That's right. Which is reflected in our title of the podcast, Christians in the Public Square, because we seek to be Christians first and talk about public matters second. Andy, tell us um, about a little bit about your background before we get started today. Wouldn't it be great if people actually could be Christians first instead of the rest of the bundle of ideologies and habits that they've formed or been misformed by in society, and to what extent do churches even catechize anymore? Mm-hmm. Or did, are we even Christians, or are we just uh, people who go to church and claim that mantle? Um, so, that was- Andy, uh, you're, yeah, you're, you're preaching my sermon, man. That's the New Testament. Paul's letters are about figuring out how to get along, not be on the same side of an issue. And he is constantly engaging in those conversations about well, should we, you know, what's a better gift or should we circumcise or not circumcise or whatever it is that he's having a conversation. Should we eat meat or not eat meat? And every one of those conversations, Paul largely hands those problems back to the church and says, figure it out and be brothers as you figure it out. Well, I'm okay with being called a Christian because that's part of who I think I am, but I guess I'm riffing off of a quote I read from Alan Jacobs uh, at Baylor three or four months ago in an article in the Atlantic who said churches have given up on catechizing mm-hmm. and uh, culture shapes us, mm-hmm. society, et cetera, economics shape us. And, you know, the church, our Christian identity is an hour a week, maybe two hours a week. And that's not filled with any teaching anymore. Mm, right. um, and so we get taught all the other hours of the week by all the forces we let into our lives. And to what extent are any of us even Christians? Yeah. Whatever label we may have. It's an important question. So anyway, I'm happy to be viewed as a Christian because that is part of how I view myself. I just am aware of how problematic that claim is for myself. Yeah. And that term has to be redeemed at some point to mean uh, somebody who's um, belongs to each other because of Christ. Right. And that's all it means. We're absolutely at risk of having lost all credibility Mm -hmm. as Christians, if we're not already there. So tell us who else you are. Anyway, so, (laughs) uh, right. Um, I was born and raised here in Texas. Um, I'm a lawyer. I went to Abilene Christian University in the 90s, then went directly to law school. Uh, at Texas Tech in Lubbock, which is, you know, the uh, Harvard of Lubbock County. Um, uh, I practiced law for 10 years here in Texas, primarily in employment law and business litigation. So, uh, you know, companies generally 
get involved in lots of disputes with each other. And I would take one side of those business disputes. Um, and then I came back to ACU in 2010, where I've been ever since. My teaching field, as Cole alluded to, is business law. Um, I dabble a little bit in business ethics and corporate social responsibility. My research has focused on mainly in, in the a narrow sense, employment law in a broader sense, kind of the business law and society wing of business law. Business law has multiple approaches. One is kind of the classic doctrinaire. Here's what the law is. Here's how it applies to business approach. Uh, I'm the other wing of the field, which is more the environment in which business operates uh, and the legal implications of kind of the environment rather than a strict focus on case precedent and statute, et cetera. Although obviously any lawyer is going to talk a lot about case precedent and statute, but I would be an environmentalist within business law, not in the sense that you may think of when I say environmentalist, right, right. a contextualist for lack of a go. better term. Well, let me tell you why we're so eager to have you on here. And so Scott, I'm going to talk for a couple minutes and stop and let, um, Andy, do, do some definitions for us. And Andy, that's code for keep my mouth shut. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, Scott, if you could just go go outside and get coffee or something. Okay. Uh, Scott and I, in our discussions of whether markets are amoral or moral and whether uh, business is conducted this way or that way, often lead to Scott saying, I just want to be careful um, that people who gain power through the market um, are checked. They are there are ways to mitigate that power, and it and they are not able to abuse people with that power. And so the reason that that always confounds me is because I believe, um, and Scott has said before, a a person or an entity who merely, and I'll put that in quotes, who merely succeeds wildly in the market is, is gaining an amount of power that is problematic. So I am not talking about people who gain power and uh, through illegal means because they're breaking laws and those laws can be um, turned over to legal authorities, nor am I talking about the argument um, people who gain a lot of money suddenly have influence with politicians that they can pay because that's illegal. And that's not what I'm talking about. And I don't think that's what Scott's talking about. Merely people who come up with a service or product that is so um, widely appreciated by customers such that the provider becomes pretty wealthy, that is a problem of power inequality that bothers Scott. And we, when we have this discussion, it always ends up at uh, talking about corporations. And anytime we go there, Scott and I realize that we've hit a wall with our, our knowledge and are stepping into weeds of ignorance because we don't know enough about it. And anytime I would ask someone, hey, who around here knows about corporations? They would say Andy Little, period. Just Andy Little. He's the guy to talk to. And so what we want to do today, Andy, is not stop a conversation, but to actually start slowly a conversation that we'll probably probably revisit over time um, to understand uh, corporations' presence in the market that either that can clarify Scott's and my position. Mm. So maybe we should start. Scott, is that a pretty good? Yeah. Uh, Okay, maybe we could just start by having you tell us the difference between a sole proprietorship, a corporation, and an LLC. Can we start there? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, these are big subjects, big subjects. Um, let's start with the easiest one to conceptualize, the sole proprietorship. This is just one person selling stuff or performing a service, right? Um, whether it's a lawn mowing business, that may be a sole proprietorship. Um, a restaurant, they tend to be small. There aren't that many big sole proprietorships just because 
they, you know, the more sophisticated, uh, well, the bigger your business becomes, the more sophisticated your problems are, and you seek out advisors, whether it's tax advisors or accountants or lawyers, and all of those generally would say, oh, you, you shouldn't be a sole proprietorship. You need to incorporate, you need to register as an LLC or something like that. So a sole proprietorship is the classic one person selling something. There is no legal distinction between the person and the business. So the debts of the business are the debts of the person. The assets of the business are the assets of the person. And for, you know, the the person who mows lawns for a living, that's just fine, right? There's no issue there. They've got some equipment, uh, maybe a trailer that they pull behind their truck and whatever. That's also not very big. Um, they're driving around the neighborhood mowing lawns. Bigger uh, businesses typically will incorporate or register because there's at least perceived to be benefits of doing so. And a big benefit is a limitation on liability for the owners of the organization, whether it is uh, the shareholders in a corporation or the members of an LLC. Uh, wouldn't it be great if you form, even a, think of a small business, back to the lawnmower, if you form an LLC and you are the sole member of the LLC, there is legal insulation or separation between you and the business. So the business gets to mow lawns. You are the sole member, perhaps an employee of the business, et cetera. You reap the benefit, but you don't have the downside of personal liability other than your investment in the business, which obviously any investor can lose their shirt, whether it's a single investor or one of a million investors, if the business goes out of business, if the organization goes out of business, right? Um, so corporations have a couple of really remarkable characteristics that you and I don't get as ordinary people. Number one is they have the potential for immortality. All of us intuitively know that we're going to die. And from an existential perspective, we kind of live our lives knowing that there's an expiration date somewhere in the future. And how am I going to live today? Well, I want to be the best person I can because I'm going to die. And then depending on one's view of the afterlife, I will meet my maker. Um, and I want to, I want to have lived a good, meaningful life. And I do think kind of the existential dread that all of us feel as humans hopefully makes us better people, right? Because we know that there's an end. Corporations have no end. They are, um, well, they can, they can be wound down by a state or they can go out of business. But when you form a corporation, it has perpetual existence is the term we use. Because if I own a corporation completely, then I can leave it in my will to my daughters and the corporate, the shares of the corporation to my daughters, just so you could, like you could leave a house or a car to family members, or you could leave it to your alma mater or whatever. Um, and the corporation continues, um, even though the original owners are gone. This forms the uh, plot basis for one of the great corporate law movies in history, Tommy Boy, right? <laughs> yes. Who inherits the company from his passed on father and then hijinks ensued. Right. Um, so, but that's, that's a, an example, right? So you form a corporation and you don't have to worry about it dying. Now it, again, it may go bankrupt. It may, you may choose to wind down the corporation in some instances, a state can even come in and shut down a corporation. Um, but it doesn't have to die the way humans have to die. And I do think that's a significant, like a philosophical approach to what we're doing with a business that is worth talking about. The other big issue with corporations is limited liability, which we've already touched on, uh, for shareholders. Now, I'm not going to digress too far into the question of whether or not shareholders own the corporation or do they own, do they have contractual rights against the corporation? Because there would be enormous scholarly debate on that question of what is it that shareholders actually own? Do they own pieces of the corporation or do they own shares? And a share is some construct that is merely a collection of rights, but it doesn't equate with true ownership. I'm not going to get into that because your listeners may not care, but that's, that's worth 
arguing about at some point. Um, so limited liability for whatever it is that shareholders own, they don't have liability for the corporate debts. They merely have liability for the, the value of their investment, whether it was $100 or a million dollars, they can lose all that. But if the corporation has debts of a billion dollars, the shareholders say, well, I guess the corporation's going to have to handle that. I, I don't, right? Corp that may bankrupt the corporation. You may lose your entire investment. But if your entire investment was $100, then that's all you've lost. And, and you know, someone else is left holding the bag for the multi-billion dollar uh, debts that the corporation incurred, which we can talk about bankruptcy in a minute and how that plays into this. In a corporation, I know this is a super long-winded answer, it's but did you ask a big question? I did. Um, you give up some level of control when you form the corporation and take on other investors. And you also give up some level of control because the board of directors exercises significant high level responsibility for the corporation. So the CEO is not is sort of running things, but the CEO can also be fired by the board. And you see CEOs get fired by boards all the time. Now, the CEO, in turn, does have the ability to hire and fire all the other employees, but they can't fire the board because they didn't put the board in place, right? The board was elected, at least on paper, by shareholders. The CEO may have control over shareholders through various means, but the board in a typical corporation is at the top of the power pyramid and the upper level management, who we think of as being the most powerful people, actually are just under the board. So you give up control when you form a corporation, right? If, if you want to start a business and I'm going to incorporate um, and I want to get big, right? These, the scale and the power that uh, Scott is concerned about, um, then I'm going to have to have a board of directors and they could fire me. And you've got, you know, stories of that in corporate history. Uh, Steve Jobs at one point got fired by the board. Mm. Now they brought him back on, mm. right? But at one point uh, he was on the outs as I understand it. Um, the LLC, in theory, combines the best of all worlds. It is limited liability and complete control. One of the societal trade-offs that we, or at least mental trade-offs that we had in society for corporations is, yes, we're giving them limited liability, but at least they don't have control, right? Because the board's in control rather than the shareholders. Um, with LLCs, you have all the control and all the limited liabilities. So that's a whole nother level of power. So why would a person form a corporation and not an LLC? Um, investors may be concerned about LLCs uh, because there are questions about what fiduciary duties are owed between members of an LLC to each other? Okay. And fiduciary duties are far clearer in corporate law than they are in LLC law. And so LLCs give the appearance, well, LLCs often at the small level look like partnerships. You and I, um, uh, Coal form an LLC to mow lawns. And we think of ourselves as business partners, but we're really not. We're members in an LLC because partners owe each other fiduciary duties. Two members in an LLC may not owe each other fiduciary duties. Um, in a corporation, shareholders don't owe each other fiduciary duties, but it's generally agreed that management and the board owe the shareholders fiduciary duties to do what's in the best interest of the corporation. So you might insist upon a corporate form just because it's a little clearer um, who owes who what duties. LLCs are still new enough. They've only been around maybe since the 70s. I'd have to go back and look. Um, that we're still developing the law of LLCs in a it, it's still kind of a work in progress. I mean, corporate law is too, but uh, LLC law is even, that's going through their teenage years. Um, okay. Right. Corporations are middle-aged adults. <laughs> okay. That's helpful. And um, the reason that this is a confusing place to me is when I talk to people in my camp about this and talk about objections of people in Scott's camp, 
um, they will often say, look, you know, your dad had a bakery. If someone would have walked in the bakery and spilled hot coffee on their arm, they would have only been able to get so much money because your dad was a sole proprietor. Whereas the woman who went through the drive-through at McDonald's and spilled coffee on herself, McDonald's is a giant corporation, but there were giant pockets and giant insurance policies and giant, giant ways for her to recoup damages. So it's, it's not that it's necessarily a, a way to escape responsibility. In fact, in some ways it can give more. And in the second place I'm thinking about, and I, I pulled uh, an article that will be in show notes, the link, the link of which will be in show notes from a website called the American Museum of Tort Law, which I found very interesting about the Fort Pinto. Now this happened in my lifetime where it was a huge story of how in order to save two or $3 per car, the Ford Corporation did not put a baffling in between the back bumper and the, the fuel tank. And so cars were getting hit and exploding. And they did it. Uh, Lee Iacocca wanted to save money, apparently, and this was not done. Well, as a result of people suing the corporation of Ford, um, this article says the Grimshaw case sent a message to automakers that if they chose to ignore safety considerations, it would be their own financial peril because there was significant financial peril to Ford. And the case helped push the automobile industry away from safety doesn't sell and toward emphasizing new safety features in their marketing. It led to recalls. It led to penalties. So I and Scott, this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll let you talk then. I guess my question about all this is, are corporations, either LLCs or non-LLCs, able to evade legal responsibilities in ways that uh, a sole proprietor or just Joe Citizen is not able to avoid them? And is that a problem? Scott, what would you like to say? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you tend to talk about, Cole, in terms of the uh, amorality of the markets is that if I risk a certain amount of money in something, um, then I should receive the rewards of that risk. And part of what frustrates me about corporate arrangements writ large is that they are mitigating risk. They're not mitigating reward, but they're mitigating risk. So, you know, the, the, I mean, Andy, I'd, I'd like to know more about this, but when you say they have fiduciary duties um, to the shareholders, I understand from our past conversations that you don't believe that that means that's the only responsibility that corporations have, but that they do have responsibility, fiduciary responsibilities to the shareholders. Um, that means that when I buy my hundred dollars worth of stock, I stand to gain an infinite number, uh, an infinite amount. I only stand to risk a hundred dollars. And that's different from the person who owns a bakery who decides to put in uh, you know, a $10,000 into building his bakery and something terrible happens and everybody gets botulinum toxin. And so a bunch of people get sick and he gets sued. He stands to lose a, a lot more than just his investment. A lot that, I mean, as I understand it, that's the reason why he might want to limit his liabilities because he could lose more than he even owe, uh, 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 paid to own the, the, the bakery. And so my frustration with this whole conversation and, and part of the ways that I think the market has played against the flourishing of the individual is that corporations have set it up to where you limit liability, but you don't limit the possibility of profit. So it's not really risk in the same way that, um, uh, that owning a bakery is. Cole, am I, am, am I registering with where you thought I would go? Yes, except you're wrong about the fact that it, it does not, it absolutely limits reward in that the government of the United States taxes corporate. Stop it. Of- I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about taxes. I'm talking about the, the, the protection of the core, the, 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 the effective corporate tax right now for many corporations, for many of the fortune 500s is zero. So it doesn't matter to me as much um, whether that's possible. I do want to talk about that eventually is whether, whether, um, uh, whether we have the right to tax corporations, but I'm just saying that the that there are limitless opportunities for for profit, 
and but there are limits to loss. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah, taxes, I'm not a tax expert, um, so I'm not really going to touch that other than to say taxes are usually conceived of as a as a percentage of something. So if I can make, you know, a hundred million or a hundred billion or a hundred trillion, sure, I'm going to pay some taxes, but it's a percentage of that upside rather than, you know, uh, some flat rate or whatever. I want to go back real quick to something, circle back to the fiduciary duty question, Scott, that you touched on. So the fiduciary duty that the officer or director of the corporation owes is to the corporation primarily. Uh, and indirectly, perhaps to shareholders. Interesting. So far as they benefit from the corporation being well run, uh, you know, et cetera. But directly speaking, the duty is owed to the corporation. And, and this is among the mistakes that Milton Friedman makes in his famous 1970 article in the New York Times Magazine. Is Which is what said, informed my position. So go for it here. Right, right, is where he says management executives work for the employers, which he equates with shareholders. And that's just not right. The employees, I'm sorry, the shareholders are not the employers of management. The corporation is the employer of management. And so the duties that are owed are owed to the corporation, not to shareholders directly. There are, of course, indirect duties that shareholders can enforce through what's called a shareholder derivative action, but that may be too far down in the weeds. But directly speaking, the fiduciary duties to do what's in the best interest of the corporation are owed to the corporation, and that's it cannot be equated necessarily with profit at all costs, which is kind of where Friedman comes down. Okay, now He said within the rules of the game, profit within the rules of the game, he would, you would have to expect that the corporation should use its profits to change the rules of the game if you're a freedman and a freedman disciple, which would be lobbying for legislation that permits you greater upside and less downside. So profit within the rules of the game is tautological. It doesn't help us. I'm so glad you said that because I would like to insert here that if you have a lobbyist who influences your politician in ways you don't like, your problem is with the politician, not with the lobbyist. If rules are changed in ways you don't like via legal means, your problem is with politicians and you can vote that person out. So I, I, I want to stand firm on nothing illegal is happening. A lobbyist has every right to try to change law. That's how our laws are made. Yeah, I would agree that if you're changing a law through the legislature, it has been a legal thing. Yes. That's not an illegal thing. It may be terribly unethical. Well, and that would be a matter of opinion. Right now, I currently live in a governmental state that I find highly unethical, but nothing that I can point to has been done illegally. So my only option is to vote in new people. If the, and I, the reason I'm, I harp on that, guys, is because I really want to draw a distinction between corporations corrupt laws and people evade laws versus they are people in corporations are following laws that um, we may or may not like. To me, those are two very different things. And people often argue A uh, in the language. I think, I think though that you're, you're being reductive about some of the complaints, at least that I have about corporations. It's not so much that they have access to lobbyists. I'm not sure that's the problem. Not yours. I don't hear you saying that much. Yeah. The the problem I have is that when corporations have the right to unlimited speech and that campaign contributions are equated with speech, clearly corporations don't get to go to the voting booth. But the way in which they are permitted to promote a candidate um, or a law or to promote a uh, policy in the state that is to their best interest over the voices of individuals, I do think is a problem. I'm not sure it's the corporation's fault, Cole. I I think that is a collective problem. And, and, And maybe your argument would be, well, Scott, if enough people have a problem with it, they'll change the, they'll change the rules. 
but I, I wish that we would have more of a problem with it. So we changed the rules. That's my argument B. My argument A is um, finances do not equal speech. You can buy all the radio and TV advertising that you want to tell me to vote for Kamala Harris in the upcoming election, and I still won't do it because I'm a critical thinker who knows how to judge arguments. So I, I just, to me, that is a that is not a good argument. Well, I, I didn't come up with that argument. Citizens United was the, the argument was that money is speech and that you cannot limit the corporation's speech. So it's not that I came up with the argument that money is speech. Citizens United did. Yes, I know. But I, what I meant to say was, I don't believe that having unlimited money into PACs and into election advertising equals undue influence. How about that? Oh, that is okay. That's clever because you got. And me. there's also, and I want to say, and Andy can probably say more about this, but there are laws that govern how corporations interact with their members. Like I can't. Well, and this is where the J and J. Let me just stop and say, when you talk about the J and J case, there are laws that say I can't suddenly pay myself a million dollars from my corporation and then declare bankruptcy, at least the way I read them. So help us understand the J and J case and why it's so unique. Sure. So what you just referenced there, uh, Cole, was the fraudulent transfer law, which says, yeah, you can't you can't pay yourself a ton of money and then say, oh, my company has no more money, bankruptcy, right? Because there's a look back window before the bankruptcy filing that prohibits that sort of transaction. Now, uh, the J&J bankruptcy case is a classic example of, in some ways, it's kind of what Friedman is getting at. Like, do everything you can, so long as you stay within, his term was, the rules of the game. But the rules of the game are not near as black and white. He, like, he's got a very simple view of the law <laughs> as a series of prohibitions or perhaps enablements. But any lawyer, any tax accountant is like, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, we can make some arguments here. And so, uh, again, among my other concerns about Friedman is an unnuanced view of what the law actually is. So here, and Jay and Jay will make this clear, I hope. Here, here's what happens. Um, tens of thousands of plaintiffs uh, sued Johnson & Johnson in years past for claims arising from the use of talc powder, like, you know, Johnson & Johnson baby powder or whatever with claims that it caused illness or cancer or significant problems. And uh, they convinced juries in some cases. And so the losses start piling up for J&J. This is classic mass tort litigation. And mass tort litigation has certainly been a feature of American law for several decades. We saw it with uh, asbestos. Um, you've seen it with uh, product recalls, you know, Firestone tires or yes. something like that. So there's there's plenty of these examples uh, floating around. And at times in mass tort litigation, uh, companies will declare bankruptcy and they will use the bankruptcy process to kind of limit the losses and a lot of times those companies totally go out of business as a result. So we've got claims against us for $5 billion. All of our assets combined are $1 billion. Therefore, we're going to use the bankruptcy process to kind of to, to come up with an orderly way to pay these claims. Even though we know the claimants, the individual claimants are going to get pennies on the dollar, it's still at, at least it seems orderly. And some of those companies are long gone, right? Whether it's asbestos or whatever, kind of some of the original era of mass tort litigation. Mm -hmm. We've even seen nonprofit corporations, and rest assured, a, a nonprofit entity is a corporation, like the Boy Scouts of America have mm -hmm. used bankruptcy law to try to limit the claims that are made against them in sexual abuse cases, for instance. Um, so, so it's not totally unheard of to say, let's use the bankruptcy court system to come up with an orderly way, in a defensive manner, to come up with an orderly way to limit our losses. Here's what's different about Johnson & Johnson. They've got 
all these tens of thousands of claims against them. And in October of 2021, I think the date is October 12th, but I may have my dates wrong. They took advantage of a provision of Texas law, and Texas is one of just a small handful of states that permit this. They took advantage of a provision of Texas law to create two different entities, and they dumped all the liabilities plus some assets into one of those entities, and they kept the remaining assets and no talc liabilities in the other entity. Then they converted one or both of those to a North Carolina LLC, as I recall, and then put the liability holding LLC into bankruptcy in the Western District of North Carolina, and they reconverted the asset holding entity back into a New Jersey, I want to say corporation, and it's rocking along great, and the uh, North Carolina LLC filed bankruptcy. All of this happened, I believe, within a four-hour period, like between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. on, I think, October 12, 2021. Now, why did they pick the Western District of North Carolina? Well, number one, why did they pick Texas law? Because Texas law allows this. Okay, why did they pick North Carolina? Now, here's where we get into questions about Friedman's rules of the game. The Western District of North Carolina is beholden to Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals precedent. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals precedent is the most, on an issue of bad faith bankruptcy, and I'm no bankruptcy expert, so I'm relying on others here, uh, is the most permissive for bankruptcy filings. And if you're going to argue that a bankruptcy proceeding was invoked in bad faith, you as the claimant have the highest burden to prove, wait a minute, this shouldn't be a bankruptcy proceeding, kick it out of the bankruptcy court system. You have a very high burden in the Western District of North Carolina. So if you want to use bankruptcy as a shield and you think other people might say you are using that shield in bad faith, well, that's your best location, okay? That precedent is at odds with other circuit holdings. So the Fourth Circuit precedent, which governs Western District of North Carolina is at odds with the Third Circuit, which is New Jersey. I'll get to that in a minute. So Friedman would have to say, well, the rules of game, rules of the game in one jurisdiction permit this because it's a certain place. Who cares if the rules of the game in another jurisdiction don't permit this? Do what's in your own best interest. Don't worry about all that social responsibility nonsense because corporations don't have social responsibilities to begin with, he would say. He did say. Only humans have those. Corporations are their own persons. So you take advantage of the rules of the game the best you can. So they file in North Carolina. Immediately, uh, the claimants filed a motion to transfer the venue from North Carolina to New Jersey, which, duh, that's what you're like. <laughs> if you find yourself in a venue that's adverse, you're like, nope, I want out of this particular backyard. I want to go play in somebody else's backyard. So they, they had, and they succeeded, the claimants, and got it transferred to New Jersey, where the bad faith standard is much lower. And the claimants will now have an easier argument to make that J&J is, that filed its bankruptcy proceedings in bad faith. That uh, bad faith hearing, I believe, is set for February 15th, 2022. So as we sit here this morning in January, I don't know how the court's going to rule, Maybe at some point, well, of course, at some point, we'll know the outcome there. But the question is, can you use this not necessarily unique provision of Texas law, but a fair, again, there's only a hand, small handful of states, three or four, that permit what Texas law does. Can you use that sort of legal provision to shunt off all liabilities one direction with a little bit of assets? all good assets a different direction, and then put the liability-bearing entity in bankruptcy and then defeat claims that would be made against it. Is this the first time it's happened? No. This is, there. I think I saw a reference to three or four other cases where companies have tried this same thing, but it's still a new development in the law only the last few years as I understand it, every single one of those cases was eventually filed 
in the Western District of North Carolina because they wanted to take advantage of favorable uh, precedent within that judicial circuit. So I, I have no idea how the New Jersey court, now that it's been transferred, will rule on the bad faith argument, but that's where things stand, at least in January of 2022. So quick point of clarification, there is no look back law that says, obviously you were sued before this subsidiary existed. So we're not going to let you transfer your liabilities to the subsidiary. Oh, they will make a look back law argument. That will be one of the grounds for bad faith is this would amount to a fraudulent transfer. But if 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 I'm J&J's lawyer and I haven't thought through all the arguments they would make, I might say, how can taking advantage of Texas law be a fraudulent transfer? I'm doing what Texas allows. How does this, how, how is this disallowable in the bankruptcy system when I'm just doing what corporate law permits me to do? That may be one of their arguments. I don't know. I don't think they've yet, I'm not sure if they've filed their response to the okay. motion for bad faith. So I'm not sure what they're gonna argue. Meanwhile, people have cancer. And that's the part, Cole, I want you to to help us think through is I get, I listen, I get people that we play what we can play. And I understand that function. But uh, profits are one thing. But people having cancer because, well, people wanting to make the claim that they have cancer because J&J hid uh, the, uh, the consequences of using their product. How do you justify their behavior? Well, it's going to be an argument that neither of you will agree with, but I think it's exactly what Adam Smith at all would say. Okay. Um, my goal is long-term success. If I put out a product that hurts people, it does not help me achieve long-term success to cover it up and pull maneuvers in court to succeed short term. So I would, and like Andy, I have not read the intricacies of the J&J case, but I would assume that J&J is going to argue there is insufficient evidence to link causally our talc with the people who have cancer. Um, If there was overwhelming evidence, such as our tires are exploding and overturning Fords, then I think that a mea culpa, let's do what we can do. Uh, Or we didn't put in this $2 baffle and our pintos are exploding. So let's take it on the chin. And because we want Ford to be around in a hundred years. Once the, I think Jane Jay would say, we're not, we're not going to concede to these arguments because we disagree with them on their face. And given the United States, um, um, hyper litigation context, I, I can only assume that's what's happening. So if, uh, if, if J and J, uh, continues to profit on the other side, that's our fault for continuing to buy their products because what we, if it does matter, uh, then we should, we should stop buying their products. If Ford's mistakes really do matter, we should, we should stop buying Ford's because eventually they'll be less lovely in the market when they've been egregious enough and we'll, uh, we will make the, the consumers will make them suffer. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And that's in Adam Smith's language. That's what Boy, that is a long-term consequence, especially when, you know, you look at some of the short-term, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this. I love this website that you put in show notes uh, for the Ford Pinto. Cause it's got cartoons, which is my language, brother. <laughs> But I mean, you know, that the original uh, punitive settlement, the punitive finding uh, that was awarded by the jury was 125 million. And then Ford appealed down to 3.5 and, and got down to 3.5 million. Well, that's not Ford's fault, right? It's the system is, this is an argument that my folks are making. The system is, is geared toward rewarding and perpetuating the corporation over the needs of the individual or the, the, the concerns of the individual. It's well, not I, that it's not Ford's fault that they appealed and they got a lower, uh, they, they got a, a lower punitive damage. It's less than less than 5% of what the original punitive damage was. It's not Ford's fault. They should appeal, but there is a systemic, the cards are systemically stacked 
in favor of the corporation and against the litigants in this case. Oh, well, you said in that case, I thought you were going to say in general, and I could not disagree more. When you have people tripping and falling in Walmart on a on a shelf or on a product that is not misplaced or or there's no problem with uh, an upturned corner. There's no problem, in other words. And you have people suing when they fall down due to their own clumsiness. Then I think our courts are disposed to say we're going to look at every punitive claim in light of the hyper litigious context we live in, where people can sue at the drop of a hat with attorneys who are on contingency, and we're going to tone it down. I don't think the system is geared for corporations at all. I think it's definitely geared in favor of the powerful. Maybe corporations, it may be governmental actors, et cetera. That yeah, the, the system doesn't shouldn't say rarely, but no question. It it increases the power of those who have power. Absolutely. Those who have power get more power through the legal system. No question. And that's uh, the, the powerful have access to richer lawyers who play poker with the judges. In some cases, literally poker nights in Washington, D.C., where judges and high profile lawyers hang out and relax and enjoy the evening. But Cole, I can hear your argument. I think I can hear your argument is that Grimshaw and Gray were able to find lawyers who are willing to uh, litigate on the possibility of contingency or maybe in a class action, something like that, that you can find lawyers who see the opportunity, the, the financial opportunity and are willing to take that risk and uh, and go up against the resources of a big corporation. The fact that this case exists at all is evidence from your perspective that the cards are not stacked against the individual. Is that what I'm hearing? That's what you're hearing. I can hear that. I don't, I, I don't agree, but I can totally hear where you're coming from. For the sake of time, I think we should leap to why this matters to Christians in the public square. And Scott, I think you have some thoughts on that. Yeah. Quid debemus cogitare. Why does this matter? What should we think? Yeah. I mean, as, as Christians, I, it's one thing to be upset about this, but I'm kind of thinking about what does it mean if I don't know who the CEO of J&J is, and I kind of don't really care for the sake of this conversation. I just mean, what would it mean if one of us were the CEO? I mean, how do, Andy, how do you help students think about being Christians in that context? And what kind of decisions future you know, your future business students ought to make in those scenarios. And how is that informed by, by an expectation of acting in the pattern of Christ and in light of all of the other stuff we talked about? I mean, how do you help students think about this? I try to couch it in terms of taking responsibility for your own actions. And if you've hurt someone, try to fix it, try to make it better. Our natural tendency from uh, infancy onward is to evade responsibility for whatever may have happened. And it's not my fault. You know, the toddler says uh, it was the dog or my sister or whoever. <laughs> and really CEOs and politicians and college professors are nothing more than toddlers in larger bodies. Right? <laughs> we're, just, we're trying to evade responsibility for our own conduct. And ordinary as, as just ordinary folks, we get called on that. And sometimes we realize in our honest and transparent moments, oh yeah, I really didn't do that. I, I actually caused a problem, whether it's with a colleague at work or with a family member, we realize when we've done wrong and we try to fix it. And I would say that the trend in entity law, whether it's corporations or LLCs or, or something like that is toward getting rid of responsibility. And the trend is favoring uh, the bankruptcy court system is a great example of this. We can say the bankruptcy court system is good because it allows for second chances. Uh, and in that regard, it actually fosters innovation and creativity and it encourages risk taking, et cetera. Okay, that sounds positive. If you think about companies that, hey, they tried, they failed, let's give them a fresh start so they can try again. But who did they leave holding the bag in the process? And, you know, when I was practicing law, I had partners who were committed Christians. I had partners who were committed atheists. And 
I remember a conversation with one of my dear friends who was a pretty committed atheist, his frustration with Christian business people in town who routinely failed to take responsibility for their own actions when they stepped on heads to get to the top, et cetera. And I, I think for him, that was, he kind of had this visceral anti-Christian reaction. And it was because he would say he's seen too many people who claim the cause of Christ who will do anything to get to the top and refuse to take responsibility when they hurt others. So I think it's as simple as if you hurt someone, fix it, or try to fix it, or at least start with an apology, not only because it honors them by trying to fix it and and honors God in the process, but also because you're destroying your credibility or your Christian witness by causing harm and not doing something about it. Uh, continuing to evade responsibility is uh, impairs what shred of witness we have left to the world when we do that. Man, I really appreciate that. I uh, what I heard from you though is that the atheist understands that 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 you ought to act in the best interest. I mean, you ought to think about other people. You know, you ought to be honest. So that's not a uniquely Christian set of values. It's just that. At a minimum, <laughs> at a minimum, we should try to hold up to those, right? I mean, at, at a minimum, we should hold up to what other people would expect as just being good, regardless of whether it's being Christian or not. Right. I totally agree. Um, yeah. So one of my favorite economists wrote a humane economy, Gerhard Rocky. Oh, I love that name. Kind of a third way economist, uh, post-war Europe. He makes the argument we have lost the ability to have free markets because the traditions that have supported us for centuries have have vanished, right? Whether it's family or church or community or whatever, all that's gone. And we don't have enough moral fiber. We don't have enough humanity, I think he would say in his book, A Humane Economy to really be trusted in a free market because we destroyed the pillars that supported it. Um, and, and I, I think as Christians, we just have to say, all right, like what's baseline decency and courtesy and baseline respect for other people as we go about transacting and doing deals and whatever. And yeah, we can learn a lot from people like my, law partner who wanted nothing to do with God, but I think was a fundamentally honest person. I, yeah. I firmly believe that a- atheists can be ethical, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we got a lot to learn from folks who are more ethical than we are, because they actually do try to take responsibility. Well, this relates a little bit to the previous set of podcasts, Cole, but uh, Beverly and I uh, binged over Christmas break. We binged on Yellowstone, which had a lot of F-bombs and uh, sex scene. So that's why I say it referenced our previous conversations, but we watched a lot of commercials because there were a lot of commercials in the middle of all of those. Um, a lot of them were car commercials and we were surprised, uh, to see the differences like between Subaru had, you know, well, there were some car commercials that if you drive this car, you know, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll be like this sexy person or like this, uh, wealthy person or something, but Subaru, had a series of commercials that ran the same over and over and over again, never showed a car, never showed one of their vehicles. The, the, what they did was they, I think what Cole would call virtue signaled their audience and talked about the, um, the things that Subaru has done to uh, contribute to the community's needs during the pandemic and their future plans to contribute to, um, uh, to environmental awareness uh, they never mentioned their car. They never showed a car that they that 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 they're offering. And I'm not saying go out and buy a Subaru if you're a Christian because they cared. I, I I think that's I think that's potentially a play in the market. Whatever it could be, virtue signaling, greenwashing. It's yeah, it could be greenwashing. Yeah. But having said that, it it does remind me that um, there are ways to uh, to call each other to the angels of our better nature. It could be virtue signaling, but it can also be uh, an awareness that that our community has angels of their better nature, and it's okay to uh, to speak to those. 
a, a lot of what I reacted to when I saw those Subaru commercials were some uh, some of the other messaging that I think happens around Christianity too often, which is, hey, if you become a Christian, you get to go to heaven and you get all the rewards. And so it's a great trade. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it ends up being the opposite of the Subaru commercial. And we're talking about Christianity. And so I really appreciate, you know, the 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 way that y'all over there help students think about how to do this, how to be Christian. I'm not sure that they're, that the answers are always clear, right? If it's never going to be perfectly clear on what one should do or how one should think, but I do think wrestling with it is important. I do think asking, is this okay? Is important and asking, uh, and, and being willing to uh, to look at ourselves and and evaluate ourselves that's important I mean from a Christian perspective yeah so one thing I want to one quick clarification and then I want to react to a point that Cole made I don't know 15 minutes ago at this point <laughs> um, so the quick clarification is it it's Wilhelm Rotke, not I think I may have said Gerhard or something anyway get the get the first oh name. yeah now He's entitled to, thanks for clearing that up his name right. Um, so Cole was talking about kind of the long-term view of, you know, we change corporate behavior usually through the libertarian view is through market mechanisms like consumer behavior, perhaps investor behavior, even more perhaps lender behavior, right? Banks won't loan money if you're a bad company, et cetera. So there's these market mechanisms that we say, well, eventually uh, consumers would would pull away from that company and, you know, they'll either get right or they'll go out of business just because they won't have a product that people want anymore. So long-termism is anathema to boards of directors and executives who are all short-termers. And the longest generally period of time that any corporate board or set of executives is going to analyze is a year. It's much more likely to be a quarter right? Quarterly earnings, quarterly reports, et cetera. And so, well, and it, a lot of times it's just today. The, the view is how's the stock price the doing today. today? Maybe how do we do this quarter? At the very farthest outer reaches of our horizon, what's it look like this year? So we're, we don't live in a long-term world as it relates to corporate decision-making. We live in a very short-term world, which I'm certainly not, there, there are countless corporate critics who, uh, including some ex-executives and scholars and philosophers, et cetera, who decry short-termism. I just think that's where the market is presently. I think you're right. I wonder if that is perhaps mitigated by uh, the board of a corporation having both old and young people on it and and the public looking at them saying, look at them acting short-term. I don't I don't find that lovely and I don't want to reward that. And the young people saying, I want to be in it longer than you, who's about to leave this board and thwart our investors coming along. I mean, I, I do think you're right. I wonder if it's that neat. Nothing is ever neat. It's always messy, <laughs> right. uh, which I certainly acknowledge. But, uh, you know, boards are drawn from a particular stratum of society and we're, boards are often executives from other companies who happen to serve on this board, even though they're an executive or an ex-executive at that company over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, pick up, look at any major corporation on their website, look at who's on the board. And once you look at 10 or 15 of them, you're like, oh, wait, we're all dealing with the same class of people here. Mm-hmm. They're not not really democratically elected. It's not like individual shareholders I mean, in some cases, individual shareholders actually vote for or against a board member. But a lot of times it's uh, investment banks and, and large block uh, shareholders who own large blocks of shares, right, putting their favorite people up. Um, so I don't know that the, the board process is a little bit opaque in some cases, not very democratic. Um, and depending on how corporations are structured, you may have, you know, class A shares, class B shares, et cetera, where mm. one set of shareholders is making decisions based on their uh, voting power without necessarily 
as far as board membership without regard for what other shareholders think or want. And always messy. Yeah. And uh, I hear what you're saying, Cole. If it matters to us, then we'll act like it matters. And if it doesn't matter to us, that's our problem. I, I do think, I can't remember the name of that show where people used to lose weight on teams on TV and uh, biggest compete. loser. Biggest, biggest loser. Yeah. There was a lady on that show uh, who was meeting with one of the, the consultants and she was describing some of, you know, her own food choices and those of her family. And she said, you know, kind of teary eyed. She said, listen, I can buy an extra large pizza at Sam's for $5 to feed my family healthy costs a lot more money. It costs a lot more. And I can't, you know, I I live on a limited income and a $5 pizza feeds everybody. And I remember Bob looking at her and saying, I can't compete with that. And I thought it was interesting on two layers. I think one resonates with you and the other resonates with me. The, the, I can't compete with that is if that's the only, if that's the way you're making your decision, how can I compete with that? And I think that's the the way that that would resonate with you. But also for me, it was kind of like, also, uh, yeah, this is the way that the problem comes about. We can't just rely upon systems and assume that they will always respond in ways that are the, in the best interest of the people involved in the system, that the systems will oftentimes respond that are in the best interest of Sam's and not necessarily in the best interest of their consumers. Mm-hmm.